on digital radio across the UK, online and in your ears right now. Welcome to Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast from Union Jack Radio. Uh, Union Jack is a digital radio station that celebrates six decades of British music and comedy and, and just general silliness. They are a brilliant bunch of people. So reach Union Digital Radio and have a listen. And I'm not just saying that because they're paying me, even though they are paying me. Although, to be honest, they're not paying me enough for that kind of glowing praise. Let me look how much they're paying me. They're a bunch of morons. Anyway, welcome back to Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory with me, Jeff Lloyd. We are over halfway into Series 1, which means we only have a couple more episodes left. But before you break down in floods of tears, we are already working very hard behind the scenes on a second series. And there are lots of special announcements just around the corner. Does that sound like a man who's making it up as he goes along? I'll leave that for you to decide. In this series, Britain's best comedians take me on a stroll down memory lane to their hometowns. We've had Matt Ford, Tom Allen, Richard Herring, but today is potentially the most exotic, glamorous hometown yet. Simon Evans takes me around Luton. Luton. Founded in the 6th century AD by the Anglo-Saxons and home over the years to manufacturers of ball bearings, gas cookers and hats and, of course, the fifth busiest airport in the country. Luton is also the birthplace of my guest this week, Simon Evans. Simon's a clever, original and very funny comic. I very much enjoyed his Radio 4 show, Simon Evans Goes to Market. And you'll have seen him on stuff like Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow and Live at the Apollo. I have spent the most on these glasses I ever have before, knowing that I would wear them on stage. And I am convinced they also give the impression that I'm wearing a false nose. That is the case, isn't it? Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and with the help of an iPad and Google Maps, I'm about to take Simon time-travelling to the streets where he grew up in Union Jack's hometown glory. Simon Evans, hello. Hello. Apologies, apologies for my voice. It's OK, as long as you don't transmit it. I'm sat as far away from you as I can in the studio. I'm feeling quite bad because when, when you came in, we shook hands. Ah. And um, I once interviewed a musician who insisted on bumping elbows rather than shaking hands because yes. he was so concerned about not passing his germs on to me. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's why, that was Hitler's uh, main uh, psychological um, predisposition, which led to everything, really. Is that right? Fear of germs, yeah. Absolutely germophobic. Um, I want to talk Nevertheless, I'm keeping the black leather gloves on. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, the, the name of the hospital you were born in? Oh, gosh. It's either St Margaret's or St Mary's. I think St Margaret's, but I seem to remember it's no longer there, although possibly it is as a building, but I think it may have been redesignated. Uh-huh. Perhaps, perhaps Catholicism is now quite, uh, you know, controversial. <laughs> it wouldn't be. So this, this was in Luton? Yes, exactly, yeah. Did, have you ever ended up back in hospital as, as a kid? Were Do you, you know what? I have not spent a night in hospital since 
since the night I was born. Is that Except right? at somebody else's bedside. Yeah, I haven't. Not once. So do you have no scars anywhere on your no body? No scars, not, not a single broken bone. I have never had any kind of organ failure. No, I'm extraordinarily lucky. I kind of feel like I'm untested in that respect. I do feel a bit unmanned. It's, it's, I'd, I, I kind of wish that I did have a few more good stories to tell, but I've got a couple of tiny scars wearing out a bit of knee flesh on the, on the edge of a canoe, you know, and being too cold to notice until right, you right. too late, that kind of thing. You know? See, I think if I was you, I would feel, when people have lived in California for a long time and they, the longer they live there without an earthquake, they become yeah. more and more paranoid about the big one coming. You know what? It probably is a big part of the way my mind has been churning. The right. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, there are people who say, aren't they? I mean, they, they say it's good for kids to get into boxing and martial arts because when you get hit a few times, what you learn is that you're more robust than you think you are. You know, it doesn't actually break you. I have had a broken nose, but I broke my nose with my own knee. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like jumping up and bringing my knees up a bit too high. <laughs> you know, no doubt trying to impress a woman. And what would impress a woman more than kneeing yourself in the nose? <laughs> so what, what was the address of the house you were taken home to then? Uh, we lived in the Chilterns, it was called, which was a new build development in I think it was number 17, and only the odd numbers had been built at that time. I lived opposite a building site, a bit like in Paddy Clark, ha, ha, ha. You know, we were surrounded by kind of wasteland and huge piles of sand and JCBs and what have you. Which are fun things for a, oh, for a small kid. We're, we're on the Chilterns on the screen at the moment. So, oh. yeah, so like a, a modernish. Given that building site upbringing, it's even more extraordinary that I didn't spend a night in hospital thinking about it. But Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's very pretty. It's very um, sort of suburban. It's very suburban. I wouldn't call it pretty, but, I mean, it's not... There, I mean, there are, there are trees. Places. There are trees there. There are right? trees, and there is still... Look at that. There is there's, still, a there's still playing fields and, and plenty of grass. I mean, I've always said the thing that I remember most about my upbringing, which seems to me to be missing now, certainly in, in Hove, where we live now, is that sense that... Not exactly countryside, but you know where the, you know just like little alleyways and paths through the woods and places where porn mags get stashed yes, under yeah, hedge yeah. and that kind of thing. The, you know everything is is kind of a little bit more specifically designated as something or other now. Well, who, who's in the house? Is your parents? Yeah, I'm an only child, and I, we had a dog. It was quite unusual to be an only child in in the 1960s, as it was then. I think it's the single most common. Format for a family now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a strange shift in demographics at the moment. That I've been reading the Chinese demographics. <laughs> no, it's with the British and follow suit. Uh-huh. The entire whole of Europe has, in fact. But um, we had a dog. It was a little mongrel that my mum had bought from a market stall in a way that I would imagine would be illegal now. When, <laughs> when, uh, about... Was it one of these dogs that was forever trying to sort of escape? Because I'm looking and I'm seeing fields around. There's yeah. the fields that the dog would want to get. It out did into. get out and into the fields occasionally. I do remember a few sort of early evening running around going, Chum, Chum! His name, his name was Chumley, spelt Cholmondley. It's an old sort of, uh, you know, Mr Chumley Warner. Who, who chose that name? My dad. He thought that was quite amusing to have yeah. an aristocratic mongrel. Yeah. What, were, what were your parents' jobs? My dad was working for Alcan, I think, at Metallurgy and Aviation. He was hugely interested in aviation. He mainly took the job in the foundry, I think, when he was a young man because they used to occasionally take delivery of wreckage still from, you know, the war and so right, on yeah, of yeah. bits and pieces pieces of aeroplane that would be supposed to be melted down but he would like nick them and in his garage he still had probably still does have you know the odd tail light from a Lancaster and that kind of thing that he wasn't supposed so, to have. Was his interest in aviation to the extent that you would go plane spotting? He didn't go plane spotting 
spotting that often. I mean, not like I mean, if something went overhead, he would identify it from the sound of it immediately without even leaving the. the wow, uh, you know, he he made aeroplanes obsessively, and he's only he's eighty seven now, and he's pretty much had to stop his sight and and kind of ability to stop his handshaking and so on. Have um, unfortunately thwarted him, but he made well over a thousand one seventy two scale airfix kits of aeroplanes. Were you attic, allowed to the touch The attic was them? essentially... Yeah, yeah, he wasn't weird about it. Because yeah. there's a certain man of a certain generation yeah, yeah. Who, who would be quite strange I about it. I wasn't allowed to play sound. with them. It's a weird thing, you know, that urge to create things in miniature. I've never quite had it myself. And did your mum work? Uh, she didn't then. She did when we went to St. Norwood. She got a job in a butcher shop with John Figgins, the butcher. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hearing, I think, a little disdain for Mr. Figgins in your voice. I, loved, not, not... I love John Figgins. He was you... great. He was a big sort of burly, you know, red forearmed kind right. of fashion. He gave me books of car magazines. I was more of a petrol head than I, mainly because I didn't want to just do what my dad did. I, I read the situation very wrongly with John yeah. Figgins. No, I like John Figgins. Yeah. He was all right. And would you get off cuts? We got, I think, decent cuts of meat, but I wasn't a connoisseur at the time. But right. I think we had, de- I think we had slightly better meat than we might otherwise have done. You know, right, but, right. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm always interested in the perks. It's a messy job being a butcher, though. I mean, you know, I don't know whether what it's like now. It, yeah, back in, I mean, it was, you know, changing the blood-soaked sawdust about three or four times a, a morning. That Would was- you go and see your mum at work? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, I used to do that. I used to do the sawdust thing with her occasionally. You know, was if it I got t- off school or something. Yeah. Was it not like horribly traumatizing for a young kid? Yes. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I think it's quite healthy to confront meat. Right. <laughs> Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory on Union Jack. Taking a trip down memory lane today is Simon Evans. Were you a TV on or a TV off house? Uh, we had TV, but we were a bit BBC centric. Uh-huh. I wasn't allowed to watch Magpie, for instance. I do remember that. So Magpie, if people don't know, it was kind of like the ITV version Peter. of Blue Peter. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it had uh, Mick, somebody who had like kind of Mark Bolan hair, yes. and used to wear kind of crop T-shirts and stuff. Whereas on BBC on um, Blue Peter, they were all dressed as if you know it would be perfectly fine if the Queen dropped in. You would need to be embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> But I never actually, I thought Magpie was a bit rubbish, to be honest. I never quite understood. But the point was, I, I watched it at my friends' houses occasionally. And yeah. I mean, it was that, you know, that immediately you get, oh my God, you're allowed to watch Magpie. Forbidden and then I fruit. Go, this is crap. You know, <laughs> the only thing I remember about it was they used to, Blue Peter would have an appeal every year where they would come up with something creative, like famously the milk bottle tops, you know. And they were, these were melted down. Whereas uh, Magpie just asked for money. They just wanted cash. <laughs> and they would have this kind of red line around the studio showing how much cash they'd raised. And it was so, it was like that. Whole, you know, like on um, Bullseye, when at the end of Bullseye, you know, uh, Jim Bowen, Jim Bowen would get a roll of fivers out of his pocket. <laughs> <Counting the power. laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like cash in hand deal. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't like Grange Hill either. I, I was allowed to watch that grudgingly, but it was thought oh, that might corrupt me. Yeah, it was. It was a bit rough. I was only th- I was thinking about it yesterday, Grange Hill. I remember some year some kid drowned. And it like quite harrowing things. Yeah, Zamo got it was a heroin addict, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. You know, likable kid, and you sort of believe it. Of course, that's the thing you do. I mean, as a kid, you 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 buy in a lot more. I think, yeah, in that as respect. a kid, I never touched heroin. Yeah, after what I saw in Grange Hill, <laughs> or through a sausage yeah. with a fork still in it. Yeah. And what about music? Did your parents parents have music on? Did they have record collections? We were in St Albans by the time we bought. It was a music centre, which was the thing. You know, prior to that, we had that like big old radiogram. A phonogram, you know, kind oh, of yeah, like wooden thing. Yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. 
They had a few old uh, 78s and they were mostly, they had some Lonnie Donegan. Uh, there was one called The Finger of Suspicion, which I remember very clearly. <laughs> they did quite like the Beatles, but they liked their kind of cheekiness. You know, they liked the cheeky mop-top Beatles. They weren't, you know, they stopped at Rubber Soul, I think. You know. Right. So, so what is Dunstable famous for then? Well, I think it was a kind of new build over Flowtown. I don't think it had very much history as such. Right. Dunstable. It's good for you, though, because I guess on Wikipedia, you're mm. quite high up the notable people from Dunstable. I think I think they put me on under Luton for having been born there. So Right. Yeah. yeah. When I think of Luton, I think of, I think of Eric Morecambe. Because yes. famously, he was a fan mm. of Luton Football Club. Luton FC. He lived near us, actually. He lived in Harpenden, Eric Morecambe. Did you ever see him? Uh, I could create a false memory of it if I wanted to, I think. I don't think I genuinely did. Because <laughs> no. those things were usually only ever rumour. Like you would yeah, hear yeah. tell of these people, but you'd never yes. actually see them. Yeah, and my father reminded me hugely of Eric Morecambe. He had the same glasses, he had the same right. haircut, you know, he had the same sort of dress sense. Yeah, and yeah, his, yeah. And his sense of humour was basically taken from that. I, I created a list once with a mate of uh, non-verbal Eric Morecambe jokes, and every single one of them, when you think about them, make you laugh, you know, like adjusting the belt and making the squeaky sound or... There isn't, there's nothing like that nowadays. No. I mean, there are lots of other things that were just hilarious and brilliant. It's not, you know, but he was such a unique presence in everyone's life. What was your primary school called? Oakwood Junior Mixed Infants. On, um, I think it was school. on Oakwood. This is in St. St. Albans. Albans. Yeah, there it is. Oakwood Primary School, exactly. We're just zooming in on the screen. Oakwood Drive, that's right. No. Oh, yeah, we can see it. So here's. Yeah, yeah, there's the entrance. That's the entrance. it. Yeah. Do you remember your first day at school? Yes, I do. I remember certain, I mean, not like the whole day, but I remember mm. how it felt to go in. I loved my blazer. It was a lovely grey, quite a kind of rough cloth with a little bit of green ribbon trimming the uh, the lapels. Very smart. This I still think it's probably the smartest I've ever been. <laughs> Tie on a piece of elastic, you know. <laughs> it is weird thinking of putting kids that small in these blazers and I know, ties. It's isn't weird, it? isn't it? Do you remember making your first friend there? That's a really good question. There was a guy called Carl Harms who lived almost backing onto me, uh, back gardens backed onto one another. It, slight overlap. There was about a foot overlap that you could go across the corner. And I think I knew him already, and he went. And there were nice big playing fields that we shared with the comprehensive school that was about half a mile up. So we were both, you know, they were their playing fields really, but we timed our lunch and play break so that we didn't have to fight turf wars with the big kids. Because <laughs> those kids, I mean, when I think of being at primary school and seeing a kid from secondary school, they just look straight up look like adults to me. They look yeah, like yeah. these huge things. I was talking, I remember when I first went to my first day at uh, a comprehensive school and encountering, you know, these fifth formers and sixth formers, they looked quite kind of thuggish and the way they wore their ties and everything was intended to give that impression. And then, you know, you see them having a fight occasionally and I just thought, they they will kill one another, these people. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You can't have a fight when you're that big. <laughs> 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 You're listening to Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack. On the, on the scale of sort of dunce to swat, where were you? Oh, I was a swat. I kind of defined myself by my academic abilities at um, at junior school. I was I was pretty bright. And, did that rub um, people up the wrong way? Yeah, it did, definitely, yeah. I used to do, God, I cringe now, but I, for, for instance, if it was like a um, an English test, but there was the opportunity to use some scientific nomenclature, you know, <laughs> instead of just writing water, I'd write H2O or something, and it just... Oh, God, you know, but yeah. If you're good at sport, 
you know, you just have to go out and be good at sport. And everyone yes. goes, great, you scored a goal. You know, but if you do that in maths, everyone's like, give everyone else a chance. No one ever says to the top striker in the school, you know, well, slow down a bit, give him a chance. <laughs> you go, no, you want to score the goal. Wait, did you have any obsessions? Like, were you a sci-fi kid? I, I mean, I was into the war. Funnily enough, I was watching Band of Brothers and um, one of the sort of minor plot lines is that one of the airmen had been asked to get a Luger by his brother. The Luger was the most prized artefact. Well, I had a Luger when I was a kid and I totally get it because that was my... It was a, a toy, you know. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. Oh, God, it was so... It just felt so... It bestowed so much authority and, <laughs> and present, you know. So, yeah, I wasn't obsessed with Nazis generally, but I did... I, I loved the Luger, but we used to create a fictional narrative that might be going on for days with yes. your mate next door, you know. And so you've got this kind of thing, we're spies, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and we kind of, like, you know, wink at each other as if the adults have just... They're oblivious to this, <laughs> you know. So that was the kind of thing I used to like to do for fun. I wasn't much cop at sports. British bulldog, you know, where you have to try and run across from one side of the playground to the other. And if yes, you get was tagged... That, that was banned, was Yeah, it? yeah. Well, it was quite brutal, you know. Yeah. In theory, you should just be tagged. But in reality, of course, you know, sometimes you play variants where you had to be literally rugby tackled yeah. on, on concrete, you know. You were left to your own devices, but I don't necessarily think it was a good thing because I wasn't particularly brilliant or creative in using that <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> Did you have like a local swimming bath? In were fact, these... if you look there, that building, the one building that you can see there was the swimming pool. When, um, oh, so you had swimming had baths within the yeah, school? Yeah, but it was open air. Right. That was the changing rooms, but it, it was an open air pool. Yeah, that's so, where I learned to swim. How often would you be in that then? Once a week. Really? In, yeah. in British... Yeah. Weather all the year thing round. I remember most was the smell of the bright orangey pink sort of drawstring bags which you used to take your kit in, these kind of mm. waterproof bags because you could smell it for uh, years. But yeah, it was pretty it was pretty hardcore, yeah. You would jump jump into that and of course it stank of chlorine because you know the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the eyes would sting for yeah. hours afterwards. Um were your parents the type to throw you extravagant birthday parties? I think I was about twelve, my mum uh, arranged a trip to the Motor Museum at Bewley in Hampshire right. she knew I was crazy about cars. And she, rather than writing to Jim or fix it, she wrote directly to Lord Montague, who had evaded the death duties by turning his stately home into this motor museum. Right. And he had some tremendous vehicles there, and I got to sit in all of them. I sat in James Bond's Lotus from The Spy Who Loved Me, the one that goes underwater. Yeah. And yeah. What, what age were we talking I was 12, with? I think, and I took right. a couple of mates, but they weren't all allowed into the car. <laughs> that was my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> the horrible little Lord Fauntleroy just sitting they there. They got to stand there and like watch Like a little piggy. Look at me, friends! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so when I was reading up on you to talk to you today, I was surprised that you were this sort of comprehensive school lad. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking this this is a man who's been to naval college. I've always from the created, way you present I, on it stage. It wasn't a deliberate thing. I don't quite know how it started. That the sort of persona that I created, but it seemed to chime. People seemed to buy it. When I first went on stage as a stand-up, I remember I tried to present myself as a sort of quite rock and roll kind of I had black jeans and a black t-shirt and a black leather jacket that's how I thought you know I was 30 at the time it yeah look ridiculous on yeah. me now obviously but then it wasn't too crazy but but everyone was like who is this like deluded Travolta wannabe or whatever you know? and then I think it was because I went I studied law at university almost everybody else in the law faculty had been privately educated do you sound different to your parents yeah I do yeah my dad actually encouraged me to speak he, he used to say I remember very clearly he'd say you know, we can't afford good education for you, but this is how you give people the impression. The way you speak and hold yourself and dress creates a very powerful impression, you know, and there's no harm in making it, you know, the one that you want to create. And if you learn to speak, Prince Philip was his model. He always said, you know, really? straight back, 
and sort of keep, the, you know, as this sort of navel thing, keep the teeth clenched yeah. together like that, you know, and just sort of right. It's rather it's perfectly decent, you know. It's just like <laughs> not, not getting angry, you know. Just keeping your hands clenched behind the back as you inspect the ranks. So that's <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory on Union Jack. We interrupt this program for an important announcement. Union Jack Radio plays six decades of the best of British music and lets you vote for it. <gasps> Download the Union Jack app or on the website and pick which song plays next. Ten million votes and counting. Right, back to the programme. Sorry, Jeff. Where was your local picture house? Well, there was a cinema at the Inter Norbert. It's called the Odeon. Uh, it's on London Road, I think. Oh, it is still there, is it? Yeah. Oh, it's called the Odyssey. Look at that. Oh, that looks like it might be some kind of nightclub these days, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, kept it's got that sort of Art Deco-y look. Do you remember the first film you saw there? My mum tells me the first film that she took me to see was Snow White, because that had been her first film, and then when it came around. Snow White is terrifying when she goes into the forest. There's nothing in Frozen that competes with that for a kind of hallucinatory, you know... There's vines and roots of the trees yes. coming to life and trying to grab her. My, my son still has nightmares about that. That's but, good. He's uh, still giving yeah, kids yeah. nightmares all these years later. People far too easily dismiss the, the genius of that early mm. stuff. And then I remember, you know, the movies that you get into a bit early ahead of the, um, you know, certificate that you're entitled to yes. see, you know. <laughs> and uh, got into see The Shining a bit early as well. Wow. Yeah, The Shining was amazing. Well, it's an that amazing was, film. I but... 12 when I saw that, yeah. I mean, that's quite uh, something for a 12-year-old to say. I don't think I fully understood what was going on. He he was, he was a neighbour as well, Kubrick. He lived in... God, it was halfway between St Albans and Harpenden. Uh, oh, wow, I yeah. Could, I could have grown up literally in his shadow. Wow. <laughs> All right, was your secondary school? Secondary school is definitely still there. That's called Verulam. See, now that sounds like a lofty establishment. Yeah, it was. it had it remained all boys... But it was still pretty good, you know, good quality. They were masters rather than teachers. You know, some of them walked around with gowns on still. Uh, right. You know, and had a certain dusty, chalky kind of, you know, disregard for um, niceties. And were caning still a thing? Caning certainly were when I, when I started. But, yeah, I knew one or two boys who were caned. Tough nuts, as we used to call them. Yeah. But they were never the ones who got caned. The ones who got caned were the kind of psychos who weren't necessarily that hard. They just didn't know when to stop. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't get it. One of them went off and joined the tank regiment, I remember. And I remember thinking, you know, even then, yeah, if you can tool that, you know, that (laughs) Take that raw material. Yeah, that's right. You've got something (laughs) worth having. And then a couple of the others, they were just expelled, you know. But they were the ones who would dye their hair, put safety pins through their ears and stuff, you know. and No and safety just, pins going through your ears? No, I didn't. I kind of tried to get punk, but I just didn't quite understand it. I, I, a couple of pistol singles I love, but, you know, that was quite... I mean, that was 76 was the year I went there, so that was it, it was emerging. So were you into music? I was still discovering the stuff that punk was rebelling against. Right. You know what I mean? To be honest with you, I quite like David Essex in 1976. Right. And I still do, actually. <laughs> Nicky Horn used to uh, host something called Your Mother Wouldn't Like It from 9pm till 11pm, I think, on a Monday. And that was pretty much my only access initially to rock. That and a French exchange trip. 
my mum tried to socially engineer me into some family where it would be very quiet and I would just learn French and maybe about how to sauté vegetables, but nothing else. And she picked this lad. He was he presented himself as a very nice, quiet lad, but he was actually a stoner. He was already he was only thirteen, but he had an older brother who was called. A, they call them in French in France freaks. It's not really a word we use in the same sense here, but I think it was an American thing to it. It was a hippie, the sort basically. of like outsider. Yeah, he yeah. had a mohican. He had a quite a large knife always kind of thrust into his wow. belt, you know. And when he came over to us, all he wanted to do was visit Greenwich because he'd heard there was a head shop there. You know, right. he wanted to buy cherry Rizzlers, you know, and posters where people's faces are melting. And stuff. So anyway, he had old cardboard boxes, you know, which were just filled with LPs. There was like Led Zepp, Physical Graffiti, Led Zepp 2, you know, the gatefold sleeves. I'd never seen any of this stuff. This was about 1977. And, um, and that changed my life totally. I bought lots of just C90s and just recorded about, you know, a couple of dozen of these albums. Deep and what, was, what was his name again, this guy? Uh, Thierry he was known as but that was actually his surname I think it was Jean-Paul Thierry so you've got him to thank for your I have him to thank or his brother really right you know, yeah Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory on Union Jack taking a trip down memory lane today is Simon Evans who was your first crush? There was a girl called Lynn Chandler who I was very much in love with. Probably still am slightly. <laughs> did she know? Yeah, she did a little bit, I think. And we did we got off with one another many years later. But this when I was young, she was you know, this was like seven or eight, you know, it was a kind of real Tang Yang Kipper Bank. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. just People. want the big kiss. But uh, yeah, she used to wear gingham with a good deal of success. She was very blonde, quite sporty. She was she was a little bit of a kind of poster girl for the revolution, you know. Right, she was yeah. kind of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would never know what to say to a girl if she would actually kind of acknowledge your existence for a moment. You yes. Know, still have that. Yeah, of, you'd spend your whole life yeah. wanting it to happen, but yeah, you yeah. have no idea to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about uh, Genius. This is the tour. You did it as your Edinburgh show last year mm. and you're around the country with it at the moment. Can you tell me a little bit about the idea? Yes, it's it's basically an exploration of my sense of, of having been thwarted in my desire to be recognised as a man of genius. At uh, what age did you first suspect you were a genius? I think, well, I, I found a selection of school photographs a while ago and there's quite clearly a change at around the age of 10 to 11. The first, the first three or four, just a cheerful, smiling, slightly, you know, homemade fringe, you know, one collar stuck up over the jumper. And then suddenly around age 11, there's a very intense look as... And you know a much more kind of burning kind of you know search for for some kind of solution to the right. paradoxes and I think you know I got into stand up comedy believing that it would be a fairly straightforward path towards public intellectual status whereas in reality that just doesn't seem to have panned out you know and obviously I blame my family um, The show is all around the country people can come and see it if they want to find out where it is they just type it into Google Yes, yes Google Simon Evans Genius and after obviously a number of learned articles disputing whether or not that's a fair assessment of my capacity there are some dates Yeah, If, if you could go back and like demolish anything from your childhood I think if anything St Albans when I've been back to it recently sort of has been raised to the ground a little bit, you know. I so think wishes come true. I think, yeah, more things. I'd like to see the things that have been built on it since then be raised to the ground. Right. And if you could, if you could go and um, observe yourself silently at any age mm. in your childhood, just going to spend half an hour watching. There was a thing called the wick, which was a kind of a, a large expanse of grass, and then next to it was was a wood. 
and it had like a fallen tree and a big hollow where we could kind of like get down and out of sight of everyone, you know, and have a little fire. Mate Ross made his hydrogen bombs, which were basically test tubes in which which would go... (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, that was, you know, at the time I say it's taken for granted, but when I look back now and when I see how little freedom my son enjoys by comparison, you know, and see how free range we were then, really, you know, I would go back and watch an evening. And what about a building you could get to go back inside of it's been it's untouched it's exactly how you remember it well there was the scout hut which actually backed onto the, that same place the wick that was a good time i remember those again it was kind of rough around the edges sometimes you know but um god it would probably be depressing if i saw it now <laughs> simon thank you so much for taking us around st albans dunstable and luton it's been a real pleasure lovely to see it up on screen only on union jack You're listening to Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory. And that's it, another trip down memory lane on the sun-drenched boulevards of Luton and Dunstable. I'll be back in two weeks' time for the penultimate show of the series. I'll be chatting to the brilliant Shazia Mirza. Next up on Union Jack, I haven't the foggiest. And that's the whole point. There are six decades of the best of British music which you can vote for on the Union Jack app or on the website. It's not one of these radio stations where they pretend that they're asking listeners for requests and then they just play the same old songs they were going to anyway. You get to choose the music here on Union Jack. It's very addictive. You can see other people voting songs up and down. You've got to get in there. You've got to keep pressing it. It is very addictive. In fact, I'm starting to twitch because it's been a while since I've done it, so I need to get back on that. Thanks again for listening. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack. A trip down memory lane with Britain's best loved comedians. Well done. You've made the incredibly clever decision to listen to Union Jack Radio. Six decades of the best of British music and comedy. No thanks in the war. But that's not all. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory, a trip down memory lane with Britain's best-loved comedians. Mark Steele, hello. Hello. Saturday mornings from 11. (laughs) Underdogs breaking the best new British music. How regularly are you giving it to each other? Hosted by Lucy Leeds. (laughs) Best enough you've had. Wednesday evenings from 9. And don't forget, Andy Murray's 15 Love Songs. Topical comedy with famous guests. Hello, it's me, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Sunday mornings from 11. All of this on one little radio station. Union Jack! Union Jack! Union Jack! Union Jack! Bloody Nora! Playing the best of British. This is Union Jack. Tell a friend.